Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Jamie Attenberg. Jamie is an author and essayist, and she has written a whole bunch of books, including the critically acclaimed All Grown Up and The Middle Steens. Her newest book, which came out on October 22nd, is All This Could Be Yours. Today, Jamie is here to talk with us about her new book and her writing life and a whole bunch more. Here is your weekly reminder. In the show notes, there is a link. That link will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for the stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep the stacks free. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, you can join us on Patreon. You earn perks like our virtual book club and get to connect with other listeners of this podcast. Plus, you get to rest easy knowing your contribution helps to make this show possible. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to be a part of this fantastic community. The last thing is the easiest. Just subscribe to the stacks. Leave us a rating and a review. It's super helpful and it's super easy. So please, please, please take a moment to do that. And of course, we always invite you to tell someone you know about the show. Now it's time to hear from Jamie Attenberg about her brand new book, All This Could Be Yours. All right, everybody. I am here today with author Jamie Attenberg. Her brand new book, All This Could Be Yours, is out October 22nd. Jamie, welcome to the Stacks. Hi. Hi. We're so excited to have you today. We always start in the same place. So in about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about your book? So my book uh, is called All This Could Be Yours, and it's about um, a family, um, the Tuckmans and the patriarch of the family, Victor Tuckman, uh, is on his deathbed in New Orleans. And so all these family members are sort of coming in to New Orleans to, to grapple with his death. And he was like a terrible human being, like absolutely the worst kind of man ever. So it, it's kind of, it's about that. And it's about the, um, the city of New Orleans too. Like it's a, it's a look at the city of New Orleans and, um, and that's it. I feel like, but I feel like it's also a, an American novel too. Yeah. I think one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you're writing a story that many people are familiar with in some version or another, whether it's in their own family or they're familiar with this idea of kind of the evil patriarch or whatever that looks like from another book or something. But you've really taken a fresh 
perspective on it. You've really adapted it in a way that it doesn't feel like every other book about a bad guy. So I think that's really special. Where did the idea for the book come to you? I mean, well, I just want to say that I think part of the reason why it doesn't feel like a book about a bad guy is in fact that it's not really about him. It's really about kind of like all the people in his family and the damage that he's done in his life. Cause I was, to be honest, just like not super interested in another story about a man like this. And he's, right. he was very, he was very incidental in a way to the telling of telling of the story. Um, so I, I, I got the idea. What I was really thinking about was a family um, grappling with death when you just, when you don't like that family member, that was, mm-hmm. that was part of it. And, and kind of a, thinking a little bit about grief, and how we sort of all have to go through grief, whether or not we liked the person we're grieving over or not. So those are really interesting and kind of juicy dynamics as a starting point. And I also, I really did want to set a book in New Orleans. I've lived here for uh, regularly for almost four years now. And um, I'd set my last couple books in New York. I'd had one, a couple of books that were set in the Midwest. And this was my first book that was going to be here. And I was trying to, I, it took me a really long time to figure out how to tackle to tackle this city. And I really only feel like I've just begun. Yeah. It's interesting. I've, I've had other authors on who live in new Orleans who are, who've moved to new Orleans and they've talked about really wanting to have new Orleans be a part of their books. I wonder if you know why that is for you, at least what makes you feel like I moved here because I loved it here. I'd lived in New York for, I think I lived there for 18 years total. Um, so I had finally found a place that was as interesting to me as New York city was. Um, I think that people wrestle, um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but I think people sort of wrestle or are occupied with the idea of writing about new Orleans, but do, but we all sort of like want to figure out the right way to write about new Orleans because people are really protective of this city. I feel protective of this city and I'm new here. Um, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it is an incredible special place that has, uh, just such a rich culture and such a rich history, but also so many problems. So, and it's a, it's a small city and it's really hard whenever you meet someone and say you live in New Orleans, like nine times out of town, people are going to be like, Oh, I love that place so much. So I think there's like something about it. People just have come here and had really memorable experiences. Um, but you want to get it right because if you get it wrong, boy, are you going to hear about it (laughs) from the people in New Orleans forever? Yeah. So, and I'm sure I didn't get everything right. I had so many people read this book who were from here, who have lived here their entire lives. I was like, please, do not be shy. Tell me what I, you know, got right or wrong about this city. Cause I don't want to be, I mean, but it happens anywhere. You know, like I remember I wrote one book set in Chicago, which is like, I was born and raised in Chicago and I had people correcting me on things. So, well, cause everyone's experience of a place is different also. Absolutely. Like how can you even, you know, it, you ha- that that's like part of like, um, growing as a writer or as an artist and like learning that you're just not going to please everyone or really anyone. Like there's no, no one ever reads something of mine and thinks this is exactly, this is exactly how I would have done it, you know? Right. So you have to, so that's why it's really important to just write, ultimately write the, write the book for yourself first. How long did it take you to figure that out? I would say, I honestly think that, um, it wasn't really until my fourth book which is what, which is a book that I got a lot more attention from and I, or for, and I got, um, 
I was touring a lot more and I was engaging a lot more with people and seeing them and seeing their takes on it and realizing that, uh, and it got reviewed more and, and just sort of realizing that people just bring their own experience to, to art, to any kind of art or any kind of cultural experience. So, so you just sort of have to like allow that. So I, I sort of feel like when I do these interviews, I mean, I'm happy to talk to whoever and I'm always amazed that anyone gives a shit ever about anything <laughs> that I write. But, um, but in a way it almost doesn't matter what I think about my work or what I intended with my, with my work. Um, I have really specific goals and things that I want to achieve and stories that I want to tell. And it's magic when it works, but also, um, even if people can take a fraction of what I intended away from the book, I'm, I'm happy with that because I'm sure I, I mean, I think about all the songs you listen to on the radio right. in your car or whatever, and you're just, you don't even, it just glances off of you. And there's somebody who spent time writing that song and, you know, there's studio engineers and people pack and it just sort of goes away like that. So, right. um, so I, I get that not everyone's gonna, you know, be interested in what I, in what I have to say, but I do hope they enjoy it anyway, the experience of reading it. Right. So one of the things that stuck out to me in this book, and I'm a little nervous to talk about it because I don't know that I'm going to do a good job. So let's see how it goes. I think you're going to do a great job. Great. Thank you. (laughs) There is a lot of trauma and abuse in this book that is trickled down from the parents. And I don't want to spoil anything because I'm Mm. assuming people haven't read the book yet if they're listening. But the way that it's depicted in this book is almost almost casual, the way that it's handled between the characters. And I'm really curious about that because I feel like in this moment in time, politically, culturally, abuse is being handled so specifically and deliberately and with so much like, you know, I'm having a hard time even articulating myself because I'm worried I'm going to say something wrong, but in a way where we're really taking care of the victims, which I think is new. And I, mm-hmm. I was just interested in the way that you wrote about it. Some of it, I think, probably is generational because the characters are older and so they don't have that same... It's not as immediate. Yeah, but I'm just curious about why or why it wasn't or if it was important to you to write about abuse in a way that feels less precious maybe yeah it's a little it's, it's at times I suppose a little um more matter of fact I mean I'm a minimalist writer yeah. and I don't and I don't want to make uh, you know I'm, I had wariness of making anything feel sexy or compelling beyond I mean I just didn't want it to be to feel that way I wanted right. it to be like these are the, sort of these are the facts but beyond that the the um who the abuse happens to um I don't, yeah, I don't want to give anything away in the book, but, uh, <laughs> but I, but we, we could, I think it's fair to say that I didn't make the, I really didn't make a lot of the abuse happen in the present tense of the book right. and it didn't really happen to any of the children in the book or anything like that. And I was, I was interested really in exploring, like, we know these things happen. Now what happens after that? That was what I was interested in. Like what happened? There's a, a million abuse narratives out there. Right. So it, it really was like, what what, how does this impact this family? What, how does it get passed on from generations? How does it, how are, um, certain people complicit in the, in that? Um, so, so it's not very cut and dry. It's not like this, you know, even though there is like this very bad man in the world, um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't get stopped really. Until he, well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's we can't give anything else away. I know it's kind of tricky to talk about it 
Yeah, it's tricky to talk about, but I do think it's worth bringing up the way that the abuse is handled in the book because I do think it's different and in a good way different. It doesn't feel... I didn't feel like you were writing about abuse the same way that everyone else is writing about it. So I, that kind of was where my question was coming from. I think, uh, let me just add one yeah. more thing to it, which is that I think that I started writing this book and while I didn't necessarily at the time think of it as, oh, this is my like me too, me too book. The fact is I started writing this book like a month or two after like everything mm. was really exploding with me too. Um, and so it was like this glut of horrible things that had happened um, that every day I was just, I just remember sitting at the computer crying and saying how sorry I was to so many people for all the things that had happened to them. Right. And I didn't want to live in that world. Right. right. So it might be that I sort of went to the next place with it or a different place with it because I, it's, it's there. It's you're sort of figuring out whose story it is to tell right, also. Totally. Do, are you familiar with the play Burn This by Lanford Wilson? Mm-mm. It's a play from the 1980s and it's, he calls it his AIDS play, but it has nothing to do with AIDS. And it's kind of in a similar way where it, it has to do with a gay couple who die in a boating accident and the people in their lives are left to kind of deal with it and figure it out. But there's no AIDS, there's no sex, there's nothing to do with it, but it does have to do with the idea of losing people in the gay community and what that means to the straight people that are left behind around them sort of. And that kind of reminds me of what you're saying that while this book is infused with me too, because of the time, it's not necessarily a hashtag me too story. It's yeah. It's sort of like whatever comes next. I mean, I really feel like in general, all of my peers, uh, you know, post the, the election have been like, you know, we all went through this place where we're like, how the fuck, what are we doing? What are we doing? And then the fact is that you just write about, you write about whatever you want to write about. Like you write about whatever comes next in your head and you, maybe you take the time to sort of recover from something that's happened. And then you like, and then you just, you just move forward. I've had this really interesting experience where, um, my last book all grown up came out kind of around, like kind of around the same, same time, but like a little bit before mm. it. But when I've gone and toured in Europe, because it came out later in Europe, all I got asked about was Me Too. Mm. For a book that didn't exist, I mean, it didn't exist when Me Too happened. Or it did exist. It, you know, it was written before Me Too existed itself. Mm. So it was, so that's a really experience, really interesting experience because that has like by default become my Me Too book. Right. Well, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. You can't really control how people are going to receive the work or how the time might change the work itself. Yes. You can't see, the, your audience can't see me, but I'm sort of wildly moving my hands around and shrugging like, I have no control right. over it. Once you make it, you kind of let it go and hope that the world responds. Because, and, and, but truly, like, uh, um, the thing about Me Too is that when it happened, it was like, oh no, Me Too has been forever. And obviously there was there was the first version of Me Too however, uh, 10 years ago or whatever that was. And then, and but really like I've been writing about men being shitty to women my entire career. Right. So this is not <laughs> anything new. None of this is new for me because it's none of this is new for anyone. Right, exactly. We just have new words for it or new, fr- new, new hashtags. I want to go back to the book a little bit. How do you name your characters? Oh, well, they're sort of, I it's, 
I think it's very fun for me, I suppose. I mean, Barbara Tuckman, who's the mother, I named her after Barbara Streisand, even though they're nothing alike. But she spelled, it's just like a reminiscent of the era and this sort of, she, I could just picture her like putting Barbara on the stereo, you know, walking around <laughs> thinking, you don't bring me flowers anymore or whatever. Um, and then, you know, Victor, it's a very obvious name because he is the Victor. Um I always have, tend to have a character who has a female character who has like a gender neutral name, like Ann, Andrea was my last one and there was a Robin in there. And so Alex is that character. And then, you know, Gary, these are all the family members. I think Gary is like, I think I, when I went to Hebrew school, I had like 10 Gary's in my Hebrew school. So it's like a, he's sort of, he's my generation. So it's that it's very, you just sort of feel it, feel it out. Sometimes it's really symbolic and sometimes it's, a, it's, pop culture. And sometimes it's, um, personal things that are buried deep within you that no one would ever know. All right. What about the title? How did that come to be? Well, that was, that's a phrase that has stuck in my head since my, really since my childhood, because I grew up watching Price is Right and other game shows like that. I don't know how old you are. And sometimes when I say this to people generationally, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and also like in your, like my, my foreign, um, publishers, this means, this title means nothing to them at all, but it's really like that moment when, um, during, during the showcase showdown and Price is Right, when they bring out all the prizes and they show you everything that you could win. And then they say, oh, this could be yours. Price is Right. So it's, it's about, uh, this book in a, in a, one of the themes of this book is it's about capitalism and it's about the desire for those shiny objects. And so it just, um, and, and the motivation of some of these characters is I just would, I just want shiny objects. I want, I'm an American and this is what I want and this is what will make me feel happy and feel safe. And so I, it doesn't matter what kind of decisions I make as long as I get the things that I need to make me feel safe. Hmm. I'm old enough to remember prices, right? Okay. Good. I actually live right up the street from the Grove, which is where the CBS at the Grove, which is where they film the prices, right? And the other day I was walking down the street and it was right as they were getting out and everybody had the yellow stickers on their chest with, the, with their names on it and their shirts like, I'm with Gary and like Gary's 80th birthday and like the whole thing. So... Honestly, my heart beat a little bit faster just hearing that you were even near it. I should just go on that. Yeah. I should go hang out. It's Drew Carey now is the host. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like the days when it was uh, when I was watching. It was like Bob Barker, and then um, who just didn't age at all, and then they just sort of pulled him off eventually. <laughs> right. That's what I remember being younger, like staying home from school and being able to watch it. But anyways, I digress. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What was the hardest part about writing this book and what about this book came easily to you? So I would say the hardest part, which we've discussed a little bit already, was writing about New Orleans. That was really my biggest challenge Um, because I just, you know, as I said, I just wanted to make sure that I got it right. And I really agonized over it. Um, but also it was great because I got to ask lots of questions of people and I, I walked a lot. I walked all over the city. I did a lot of driving around the region too. So it was, I don't know if it was hard, but it was, it was, a, it was challenge, challenging. Right. So that's fun. That's juicy. That's like, you want that as a writer. I think what came easiest to me was, um, I feel like the Tuckmans, I just knew the, the, the core family, like really well right away. I mean, they're don't, they're not anyone that I could say that I've ever met before in my life, but at the same time, as soon as they showed up, I knew who they were. And I was like ready to kind of just take them on and, and figure out what, you know, what I liked about them or, and what I didn't like about them. And so they were, again, it's not easy, but it was just, it was, it felt familiar. Whenever a character shows up and they feel like, you know, them already, then that's who I want to hang out with and spend and spend time with. Right. You know, sometimes I'll think of an idea for a book and I'll know what the ending is right away. And, and that, I, that's not a book I want to write, but I do want to write a book where I um, can get inside the, the skin of the character. Right, right. That's like creepy. I don't no, know. It's a little it creepy. Makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. As long as we don't find out that you're a serial killer, I think it's not that creepy. I don't think, I don't, I don't have the focus or motivation to be a serial killer. You have to be really meticulous too. You gotta have a big plan. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it take you to write this book? You kind of mentioned that it started in the early me two days. I think it takes me, I think I decided, because I have a book that comes out pretty much every two years and I have had that for the last 13 to 14 years. So I think I've decided that the first draft usually takes me about three 
so anywhere from three to six months. So there's sort of a first draft that's like, for like a first slash second draft that's like, eh, it's like fine, um, but it's got something. And then there's a third, fourth, and that usually comes in the first six months. And then you get edits, and that's maybe another three, three or four months. And then, um, and then copy edits usually take me about two months. So it's about a year cycle to write, and then it's about a year cycle to publish. Right. Yeah, meaning going through all the marketing and advertising and cover design and all that kind of stuff. Right. Do you, when do you let someone else read the book? Where in that process might you hand it off and say, what do you think? So I would do, sometimes I'll do like a 50 page to a couple early readers and say, is this anything? If I'm feeling not sure good about it. Um, I send the first hundred pages to my agent. Okay. So he's sort of the the first big read, and uh, and he doesn't usually give me notes. Uh, the idea behind it is that he um, will tell me, he'll ask me a couple of questions, and I'll just sort of make sure that I know what the big picture is on it. And I'll say, is this a thing you can sell, or or you think, or do you think the editor is going to want it, depending on whether or not I already have a book deal in place? And um, and that's usually the conversation we're having. There, it's I would say two or three times I have thrown books away based on that conversation Hmm. where he's like, here's all the things that you would need to do to make this work. It's fine. Everything you write is fine. Everything's (laughs) at a certain level, but here's like things that you would need to do to make this, to make this work and for me to be able to sell it. And then when I think about those things, whether or not I want to do those things, I never want to do those things. And I know he's right. And I know that it's just too, there's too much that isn't working. Right for me to try, try and fix it. So I've never thought about this before, but you just saying this kind of made me, you've written a lot of books. You're what I like to call a professional writer. You write, you're a real, real deal writer. Do you get competitive with yourself in your writing? For example, the last book I wrote all grown up, you know, it was acclaimed. This happened. I did this. So when I go to all this could be yours, I have expectations for myself maybe, or for this book. Yeah, they all, they all have to be better. Right. For sure. But how do you define um, better? I guess is kind of what the question is. Um, it sort of has to feel fresh and new. I mean, I feel like my themes are always the same in a way. They certainly they've evolved slightly over the years. And as I grow as a person, they kind of evolve slightly, but I, but, um, what I really want is for it to feel structurally interesting and just a very fresh experience for the reader every time. So for me, like the middle stains was a family draw, just as an example, it was a family drama and it was written, not that they were, it wasn't linked short stories, but each chapter you could really hold out every chapter and it would have been, it could have lived in its own universe. And then, um, say Maisie was, um, you know, there's interviews, there was a diary format and there were multitude of voices in there and it was historical. And I was like, this is, brand brand new for me and then all grown up was first person like a claustrophobic tight first person um narrative uh with like kind of limited plot but like oh like just like big emotional moments and gestures and it was very funny it was a very very, really focused on it being a very funny book and now there's this one so which is also very different structurally it all most of it takes place the present times but over the course of just one day so each time I want, I, I think that people who read me regularly, which is not that many of you, but some people who read me regularly get that each time they're going to get like a new experience. Right. 
And that's, that's my challenge. I don't know if I'm competitive with myself, but I have a set of rules that I have to abide by. And each time it has to feel different. Okay. So this is some of my favorite stuff that I always like to ask authors, which is how do you like to write? Where do you like to be? How many hours a day? Do you listen to music? Do you have snacks and beverages with you? Are you in your home? Are you at Starbucks? Like what's your reading world or writing world look like? Um, well, I get up really early, like six in the morning. And, and, and you know, I'm not always writing because I have other things I have to do just work work wise, like being being part of like being a professional writer is that you have to do interviews and, um, and other kinds of, and other kinds of things. Um, but when I'm writing, when I really have that six month period that I've blocked out, I get up really early. I walk my dog for probably 45 minutes. I come home, I have a coffee, I read a little bit, then I handwrite. I tend to handwrite in the mornings. Um, at this point I don't have to count. I have an idea of when I'm close to a thousand words and then, um, in the afternoon I'll type it up. And in terms of um, snacking, <laughs> I do snack. Um, I do try to get exercise in. I, I've found as I've gotten older that it's really helpful. Um, but in general, walking is, is an important part of my process because I just think about everything and I just get like um, amazing ideas just pop off in my head when I'm taking a walk. And that's it. And I, I it's not any sort of magical experience, uh, or like extreme rituals because it's just my job. There's no secrets. There's no shortcuts, you know, like that's it. You just like sit down and do the work every day. You get up every day and you just do the work and, and then the words appear before you. Of course. Have you had any other jobs pre-writing, pre-being professional writer? I've had every kind of job there was. Um, <laughs> I waited tables for, uh, for a long time. Probably. I think I started I feel like maybe like five years or something like that. Cause I started my, in college and I did it for a couple of years after college too. I got a degree in creative writing, which meant I knew how to write sort of when I graduated, but I didn't know how to be a writer or what that means or looks like. So I did that. I, I, I've done that. I painted houses. I worked in a nursing home. I, I worked, I do like doing like, I like IT stuff. Like I ran video conferencing <laughs> for an advertising agency. I did a lot of internet stuff. Um, I tempt so many, so many horrible office jobs, like you would not imagine or not believe. Um, I, you know, worked for different nonprofit organizations. I mean, I just worked, I, my first book came out when I was like 34. So um, between the ages of 18 and 34, I had every job that you could imagine. And then I still continued to do freelance work up until my fourth, fourth book, because I, that was how I, I was a writer who didn't really make a living at it. Right. But did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Kind of. I mean, I was writing little stories when I was four and five, but I didn't know what that, I, you don't know what that looks like. No, there's no, um, no one really tells you. And, and I feel like, um, it's not a really glamorous, exciting job, except that it's super glamorous and exciting inside my head. Like that I really love, but most of it is just you you sitting by yourself in a room and how do you tell someone that's what that's what the job is and you have to be I think the kind of person who likes sitting by themselves in a room which isn't really isn't everybody the people lots of people love to read and lots of people think they have a good story 
but this, the truth of it is like, it's, it's an incredibly lonely profession. Yeah. I'm one of those people I love to read and I'm not a writer. I have no interest in writing. There's no part of writing is something that I like, but I love, I love reading. And I think that, yeah. I think that's a weird thing sometimes. I think most people who love reading as much as I do have some idea of I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to write this the, my novel about my life. And I think to myself, that's the last thing I would ever do. But no, but do you think I, I keep meaning to look up the science behind reading and like what it does to your brain? Because hmm. I don't know enough about, about enough about it. But I just when I have those moments where I'm not where I'm reading a book and all of a sudden, the, like I get a. Uh, attached to the book or the book sort of attaches itself right. to me. Do you know what right. I mean? You're like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. Like I just read Kevin Wilson's new book. Did you no. read that yet? Um, nothing to see here. Oh, it's so okay. good. And I was like 10, maybe five or 10 pages in and I could just, there's something that goes on with your synapses. I'm certain there's a, someone's going to listen to this and tell me what it is. Um, <laughs> I guess I could just Google it. Maybe I'll do that. Um, but it does, does something so magical to your brain. And I just, that I and I also am so interested in like how when I read on a computer screen, I know a lot of people are reading digitally on iPads and stuff like that, but I don't I haven't started doing that yet because I find that the experience of reading on a computer screen, I take in so little of it. Huh. Whereas read a book, I'm like I re- tend to remember things more. I think I'm terrified of the internet. Mm. I mean, I'm attracted to it, but I'm and I need it, but I'm also just super terrified of like you just never know what terrible words gonna right. pop up. <laughs> you know, at any, at any given moment. And I, like, sometimes when I'm just so like feeling so, um, bad cause I've spent too much time on the internet. Cause that's cause it genuinely, genuinely bums me out the internet on a daily basis because the news is so terrible, but also like you can just sort of see people being really cruel on it. Um, and so I, there'll just be this moment where um, I'll just speak. I'll just go and read a poem. Right. <laughs> like I'll just be, I'll walk I have this thing that I, a piece of paper that I wrote. I posted it actually on the internet, but it's just like a little sticky note that I wrote, uh, once the impeachment started and it just says, if you get, if you get too upset, walk away from the computer. Mm. It's just like a reminder, like, are you, how do you feel right now? Do you feel terrible? Then you should just walk away from the computer. Right. Such a good reminder. Which is not like lots of people don't even have that obviously have that privilege of like, well, I can just walk away like they're at their office, they're doing for a job or like they don't have access to computer, but the bad things are actually just happening to them in their real life. But I think that I have I try to figure out how I can be of service to people and me angry is not going to be of service because there's me problem solving is of service. Right. And, and when I'm angry, I don't solve problems. Yeah, that's that's good self-awareness, but also a good trick if you can. If you can get away from what's making you angry, just walk away for a moment. Take a breath. I'll tell you what, it's usually the computer. Yeah, totally. Twitter. Yeah. It's always Twitter, uh, at least for me. But I, lo- I love Twitter and I hate Twitter. I have a really yes. – because it's a great place to – hear other people's ideas and thoughts on things that you might miss because of your own positionality in the world. But then also it's mm-hmm. a toxic place for hateful people to be very horrible. <laughs> it's terrible. For me, it's where I, I almost every uh, essay assignment that I've had in the last two years has been um, an editor reading a tweet of mine hmm. and saying, will you write about this for me? Hmm. 
or Instagram. Right. So I have enough. So that that's now it's now like my, I don't know. It's like my LinkedIn yeah, or something like that. Business card. <laughs> it really is my, it really is my business card. And it's like a great place for me to generate ideas. And I've, I've made friends off of it and really keep in touch with people. And it's a great place to promote your work for the most part. And, uh, so it's all those things. And then beyond that, like I have real friendships that have formed off of it and I, I can see how people are doing and people can see how I'm right. doing off of it. But in the last couple of years, it's just turned into like such a hellscape. Like horror story after horror story. Well, on a slightly better note, before we wrap up for people who read your book, love your book, all this could be yours. What are some things that you recommend to them to read that are maybe in conversation with, or you feel uh, could be similar or just a good companion piece or things that maybe you were reading while you were writing the book that you feel like are in there? The kind of the kickoff book for me um, was Meg Walter's last book, the female, female persuasion. Um, I read that and I just, I don't know, it just did something magic to my brain. I love the structure of it. And so I thought, why don't I just sort of like not write a book like this, but use this as an, an entry point into writing my own book. And I liked the way that she wrote about feminism. And um, it's very different. It's a, it's a very different book than mine. Um, and then um, I, there was a book of poetry that I, I really loved when I was writing this book called Absolute Solitude. And um, because a lot of this book is um, actually about loneliness and I'm sure I'm going to like pronounce her name incorrectly, but it's um, Dol- Dolce Maria Loines. She's a Cuban writer. Um, she, I don't know if she's still alive anymore, actually, but it's like a collection of her work um, over like many, many years. And it's just, just gorgeous. So those are kind of the two books when I think about this book that uh, were with me the entire time that I was writing the book. I love that. And then my last question for you is if you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you pick? Well, you know, I'm a great, I'm a Grace Paley head. Okay. So like, I would, I just to, just to have her near me for a second. Would <laughs> be nice. I saw her once on my college campus. I was an undergrad and she was teaching like maybe like a week classes for a week or something like she was like the visiting scholar. And I saw her walking towards me on the quad and it was like this angel, you know, this gray haired angel coming towards me in the, across the quad. And I was like, Grace Bailey. Um, and so that was, you know, I would want, love for her to have read my work because she meant a lot to me. Well, Jamie, that's it for me. Do you have anything else you want to say before we get out of here? No, I thank you so much for having me, though. It was re- I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. And remember, everybody, you can get Jamie's newest book, All This Could Be Yours. It's out October 22nd. Go get it wherever you get your books. Uh, Jamie, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. And we'll see you guys in the stacks. That does it for us today. Thank you so much to Jamie Attenberg for being our guest. And thank you to Taryn Roder for helping set up this interview. Remember to get your copy of All This Could Be Yours wherever you get your books. And you can use the link in the show notes to buy your copy and help support The Stacks. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this show. 
Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagira Gis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 